As Dave Langley shared last week, we will be celebrating Advent for the next four Sundays, and thus thought we would have some Advent-themed messages during that time, and in particular, we're going to be examining some commonly overlooked details of the Christmas story. So today's passage in Matthew is Matthew 1, verses 18 to 20. If you'd turn there and stand as we read, this is God's holy word, authoritative, inspired, and relevant for us today. Matthew 1, 18 to 20, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to us, which is life, nourishment. It is your grace to have shared with us this word upon which we can rely upon for all of our decisions, all wisdom, all instruction and righteousness. And so we thank you for that and pray that we would have that kind of attitude this morning to be receptive to what you would teach us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we talk about the nativity, there are typically a few different aspects to that story that are made prominent. The angel's visit to Mary, the journey to and birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Angel's visit to Joseph is, is often noted too, but typically people don't dwell much upon his intent to divorce her quietly. And this morning, I want to look closely at these three verses in Matthew. Verse 19 says that Joseph was a just man. And so the first question I would have is, what does just mean in, in a biblical context? Well, the NIV reads faithful to the law, and the NASB says righteous. And the Greek word is dikaios, which in the dictionaries is said to mean one who follows the law and treats Everyone fairly. So Dikaios, or the just man, according to the Greeks, for example, was one who did not bend the rules, one who treated others impartially. What did God's law say about the actions of someone in Mary's situation? Well, verse 18 says that Mary was found to be with child. And this was before she and Joseph were married. And he knew it wasn't his child. So according to Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city, lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young one, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So under the Greek definition of just... It would have been perfectly legitimate for Joseph to have taken Mary before the elders of Nazareth. She would likely have been guilty, prosecuted, and the village residents would have put her to death. Well, clearly that's not what happened. And so we must look a little deeper for what God considers just. Why was it just for Joseph to break this command in Deuteronomy 22 and divorce her quietly? Well, I had you read a second passage this week, Isaiah chapter 42, 
where we read of God's justice. And in verses 1 through 3, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And some of you are probably familiar with with that. Isaiah 42 is a messianic prophecy. It means that it foretells the coming of Christ. And Isaiah calls the Messiah my servant and my chosen in whom God has put his spirit. And so he is said to bring forth justice to the Gentile nations. But then there's that strange part. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And somehow those relate to justice. What do they mean? Well, there's an author, Kenneth Bailey. He's done a great study on the background of many cultural elements of the Bible. And with regard to that phrase from Isaiah 42, he says, Reeds were used in the ancient world as pens and houses and boats. That is, if the reeds were not damaged. But what could be done with a damaged reed? The only option was to break it, to use it for cooking or heating. Every home needed some form of illumination. Small clay lamps were used, fueled with olive oil. The wicks of such lamps hung from a spout at the side of the lamp, and as the oil ran out, there was danger that the wick might sever through burning, and flaming in would fall out of the spout and cause a fire. And so a bowl of water was often placed on the floor under the lamp to prevent such an accident. And as he's describing these things, what he's saying is that both a bruised and a damaged reed and a faintly burning wick represented things that were considered worthless and in need of throwing out. And most people would just break the reed. They would replace the wick. But the servant of God in Isaiah 42, look at that, is considered just because he does not do either of those things. In other words, he doesn't throw out the worthless. He doesn't throw out the despised or the useless. His justice is measured not by equal application of the law to everyone without thinking about context and circumstance, but rather by compassion for and especially mercy towards the weak. And that was the justice of of Joseph. He looked beyond the requirement of Deuteronomy 22. He saw a young woman whom, like the bruised reed or the burnt-out wick, was set to be discarded. She was the weak one. She was the outcast in need of mercy. So we need to make sure at the same time, though, not to treat Joseph as either passive or unemotional. He wasn't weak. He wasn't uncaring. In fact, I'm confident that he was upset. In verse 20, it says that Joseph was considering these things. And as he was considering them, an angel appeared to them. But the word considered that you have there in the ESV is not very adequate in my mind. Because that word is translating the Greek word enthymethetos, which here is translated considered, but more often is translated angry in the Bible. For example, in Luke 4, 28, we find 
a variation of this word, same, same root word, when we read that after Jesus had insulted the people of Nazareth, that all those in the synagogue, when they heard those things, were filled with wrath. So in Luke 4, the word translated is wrath. In another place, Matthew 2.16, it's found again, same author as we have here in Matthew 1. So just a chapter later, Enthymethetos is used again, and there it describes King Herod, who upon finding out that the wise men deceived him was furious. The word's also found a little bit later in Matthew in chapter 9, where Jesus adds the word evil and describes people as thinking or planning evil in their hearts And we have to realize within the context of chapter 9 that people weren't just kind of objectively and partially considering evil thoughts. They accused Jesus of committing blasphemy. They were angry. They were offended. Jesus adds the word evil to imply that their anger had turned to intending evil against him. So which nuance of that word enthymentitas would best fit a man who's not yet learned why his wife was with child, just that she was pregnant. Does not some form of anger or offense seem the better sense rather than consider? In fact, I find it interesting that the earliest translations of the Greek New Testament into other languages read, and Joseph was distressed. Clearly, He wasn't sinfully wrathful. His thoughts weren't planning evil thoughts. But I believe he was, as the translators originally thought, distressed, hurt, offended. The amazing thing is that Joseph thought past the offense and saw a woman in need of his help. And how appropriate that his stepson Jesus, 30 years later, would look with compassion upon a woman brought to him under the accusation of adultery. Right? Joseph is not a passive figure. He may not appear much in the nativity story, but were it not for a justice that reflected God's justice, a justice that showed tenderness to the weak and compassion to the outcast, Jesus would not have been born. But there's even more here because Joseph and Mary aren't the only characters in the birth story. There are also the villagers and family members and friends. And in this act of justice, Joseph is actually standing up against the entire community. No doubt there were those who would have wanted Mary to be put to death. In fact, many believe that the reason Joseph took her on the difficult journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to register for the census was not because he and Mary had to register together in person, but because he feared what would happen to her if he left her unprotected in Nazareth. Decades later, Jesus would apply this kind of justice in one of his parables. I mention this parable often, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it is the parable found in Luke 14. It's, it's the one about the wealthy man who invites a lot of people to a banquet. Everyone says they want to attend, and then the time comes to travel to the banquet. They all begin to make excuses. And the point of which I want to remind us is the man's response when a servant tells him that everyone has made those excuses. It's found in verses 21 to 24, where the master says, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. 
And still there's room. And he said, the master to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And that's the end of that portion of that parable. But what you need to understand when you read this is that that wealthy man is an example of God. And in Isaiah 25, we read that one day on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for his people, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And what we see happening there in Isaiah 25 is that God prepares a feast for his people. It is a feast of well-aged, expensive wine, rich food. It is a feast fit for a king. And at that feast, death is said to be swallowed up forever, and tears are wiped away from all faces. And so while God's people swallow royal food prepared by the majestic king himself, God himself swallows up death and sorrow and sin. I like that imagery of swallowing. Who's doing the swallowing? His people are swallowing the food. God is swallowing up death and sorrow and sin. And in Luke 14, Jesus was eating a dinner that was hosted by a leader of the Pharisees. Don't don't just read the parables, but always read the parables against the background of what's happening and why Jesus is motivated in that in that situation to speak these things. Because in Luke 14, Jesus is at a dinner. He's at a feast. It was hosted by a leader of the Pharisees and one of the other guests at the table that night who felt very privileged to have been invited and be sitting there said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he was thinking about this earthly feast sitting, you know, he's privileged, honored to be there. He thinks he deserves to be there. But he knows it will be much better. You know, he's thinking about that Isaiah 25 passage. He'll be so much better at the feast that God will make for us when we get there. And that's what Jesus tells him the parable about the, big, the great banquet. The master in Jesus' parable is God. Who were the ones that were initially invited? They were the Jewish people, the very people that were sitting around the table that night listening to the parable. As far as Jesus' dinner companion thought, they, the people that would be at that feast in this parable were the most privileged and respectable people of Israel. And interestingly, before Jesus told that parable that we read of the great banquet, he, he told another short parable that I often quote, which is found in verses 8 through 11. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't just sit down in a place of honor, 
lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's Jesus doing at this dinner? Is he just trying to irritate everyone? No, he's trying to explain God's character, isn't he? And the attitude that people should have in the kingdom of God. What we see in these two parables are humility rather than pride, preference of others, mercy and grace extended to the poor and to the lowly. And the reason why I brought up those two parables is that the master who hosted the banquet and received all the excuses from those whom he originally invited was angry as we might expect. Enthumenthetas. Angry. Offended. The anger of a just man. But what did he do? Did he seek retribution? No, he seeks out those in the streets. He sends out his servant to have compassion on the outcasts. Those who normally wouldn't have been invited to the banquet. And symbolically, those were the outcasts of Jewish society. They were those whom the ruling Jews thought least deserved God's mercy. They were the tax collectors like a Matthew. They were the fishermen like Peter, James, and John. And of course, they were certainly Gentiles of any and every kind. And so I think this is the profundity of Joseph's response towards Mary. It is the attitude that we must have towards others. Are you a just man or a woman? Are you grieved by sin? Even sin that is committed in offense against you, but you are at the same time quick to compassion towards others, especially the weak and the outcast. True justice, which is God's justice, is never divorced from mercy. True justice is not just concerned that everyone gets what's coming to them, and it certainly isn't just concerned that our rights are vindicated. There are so many in Scripture that miss that connection. Jonah ran from God at the thought that Assyria might repent rather than get what what they deserved. There was no way Jonah was going to share the gospel with those people. In Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees invite Jesus to a meal only to have it interrupted by a woman who is a sinner of all things. A sinner who comes and washes his feet with her tears and they expect Jesus to be so offended that he would immediately dismiss the woman. Instead, Jesus teaches them about mercy and justice. Perhaps you remember what he told them. You see this woman? I entered this house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And many people, when they think of God's justice, think of him as the God who loves and forgives those who are good and clean. 
Those who meet his conditions of justice under the law. The world is full of Jonas. It's full of Pharisees, friends, whose narrow world only has room for those who seem to meet up to expectations. We ourselves develop this attitude partly because we don't rightly understand the law. God's law tells us who we are and what is the right thing to do. And of course, that's absolutely good. We need to know what our righteous Lord would consider right or wrong in terms of actions. But the law cannot inspire us to do that action. In fact, rules often inspire us in the opposite direction. The desire to break rules. Law enforcement in every society is concerned with right behavior. It doesn't care why people obey the law so long as they obey it. The person who breaks no laws is considered what? Righteous. Regardless of what motivated him or her to be law-abiding. The Stanislaw County Sheriff's Department doesn't care why you obey the speed limit or don't steal from other people. And that's the same in every society. But Jesus turned that concept upside down in his Sermon on the Mount and he insisted that righteousness and justice are not simply a matter of what you do or don't do, but rather a question of why you do what you do or don't do. And the truth is that doing the right thing with the wrong motivation can actually reveal a deep unrighteousness. I say that again. The truth is that doing the right thing with the wrong motivation can actually reveal a deep unrighteousness. If any kind of obedience, regardless of the motive, is what pleases God, he would have showcased people like the Pharisees. And yet, what did Jesus say about them? He described many of them as whitewashed tombs. What's the whitewashing? That's the outside external observance of things. What's the tomb? It's the bad heart. The law does not and cannot make you righteous. God's law leaves you no other option than to cling to the one who fulfilled the law in your place because Jesus did for you what you can't do for yourself. Not just by acting in a righteous way, Not just by fulfilling all of the requirements of God, His Father, but by being righteousness Himself. All so that you might be given His righteousness. The Bible says that you become the righteousness of God. So friends, the gospel is not a second chance to get things right by giving you a new set of rules to follow. It is not a second chance by clarifying the old rules. It's not a divine power to fulfill the law so that you can finally earn God's favor. The gospel is the message that Jesus is your substitute and that he fulfilled the law. He has God's approval. His righteousness has been given to you. So don't give in to a perverted view of justice. one that has no compassion or mercy. The Bible is not a witness. Friends, the Bible is not a witness to the best people making it up to God and getting their acts together. It is a witness to God coming down to the worst of people 
People in the Bible fall and they fail. They're selfish, they're deceptive, egotistical, they're unreliable, they're, they are in rebellion and war against God, and the Bible is one long story of Him graciously redeeming us in the face of our sin. And so the grace that moved Joseph to show mercy to Mary is a reflection of that grace. The grace of Joseph is the grace of God that must be the same grace that permeates our lives and our homes and our relationships. A house full of rules with no grace feels like a prison. Rules are one thing. Take out the trash. Don't hit your brother. They govern the day-to-day and protect us from one another. They are absolutely good because they show what pleases the parents, which hopefully are the same things that please God. And those rules are hard enough because they require us to do things we don't want to do. Conditional rules are even harder, right? If you really love me, you would clean the kitchen. We will give you our blessing if you choose to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Why can't you be like your sister? Rules and conditions without grace easily communicate the message that accomplishment results in acceptance, right? You do what is right, and then you earn the authority's favor. God sending his son to be born and to die on our behalf turns that upside down because Jesus dying for us is mercy before merit. Mercy before merit. And we want to have that kind of a marriage. We want to have that kind of a parent-child relationship, that kind of a friendship. We want to have homes and families in which every person gives 100% of themselves unconditionally to the other family members without requiring that they earn love and acceptance. Does that mean we let people run over us? No, but what it does mean is that in grace-filled relationships, there is always a way forward because my acceptance of you is not based upon your achievement. It's not based upon what you do or don't do. A wife doesn't have to meet her husband's 150,000 expectations in order to be deeply loved by him. And a husband doesn't have to be exactly what his wife wants him to be in order for her to be joyful in their marriage. And parents, your children need the law to crush them, but they need grace to cure them. Rules and expectations will never make your children desire to obey. When one of our children would throw a temper tantrum, he or she typically received a spanking. But while that may rightly produce sorrow at the revelation of sin, it does not have the power to remove sin. Law can kill, but it cannot make alive. If Wendy and I do not follow up law with grace, we leave defeated but not delivered children. And the same is true of our relationship to God. God has adopted us. He has called us His own without any reference to our accomplishments. You ever notice that? It's just simply a fact. He has killed us with His law, but He has not left us dead. He was angry at our offense. 
He was justly grieved by our sin. But he moved toward us with compassion and raised us to new life by his grace. And that's what I see in Joseph. I see a man distressed. I see a man grieved over what he thought was sin, but I see a movement toward a pregnant woman who needed his help. Let's go ahead and finish the brief story of Joseph and Matthew. Sadly, it's only a few verses more. We'd love to know more about this man. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So not only was Joseph faithful to God's law, while looking beyond the law towards the principles of grace and mercy, especially to the oppressed, but he was a faithful man in stepping forward in a difficult situation, not only to stay married to Mary, but to adopt Jesus as his own. Again, we don't have much explicitly stated, but we do have some things we can reasonably imply from the fact that Joseph adopted Jesus as his own son because they're reflective of what God has done. In Ephesians 1.3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Paul says that in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Not according to our accomplishments. It all ties together, doesn't it? If you think about this for a moment, before God ever created the universe, he planned and he purposed to adopt his children. Adoption, therefore, was not an afterthought. It was in God's mind even before he created someone to adopt. But there's more there, as if that isn't expansive enough, because God purposed to adopt us before we were ever born. But verse 5 says that he did that out of love. And specifically out of love as a father. He could not wait to be a father. And when we talk about purpose, what we talk about is forethought and choice. And so there was this fatherly love flowing out of God. Desiring to make us his own. To bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And perhaps that doesn't fully impress you because you've heard of the fatherhood of God your entire life as a Christian. But think for a second about the one whom we're talking about. This is, this is the almighty creator. 
And I like how author J.I. Packer writes, vast stress is laid on the thought today that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort that we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, even a little pathetic. But this is not... This is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, and power. That's not God. He is eternal, infinite, mighty. He has us in his hands. We never had him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness and tenderness, sympathy, patience, yearning, compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never lets us lose sight, Packer writes, of his majesty and unlimited dominion over all of his creatures. And I quote that because in reminding us of God's greatness, we can then be even more amazed by the grace that this holy sovereign God could love us. Sinful creatures who are in rebellion against him. And more than that, that he would purpose to make us members of his family. Should that not move us to worship him even more? And should we not want to emulate him in our own families? In God's adoption of you, he chose you to be his in love before the foundation of the world. Therefore, your adoption is rooted in his eternal purpose and in his grace. And that means that it's not fragile, it's not uncertain, it's not shaky in any way. He does not adopt you and then find out that you are unworthy or difficult and remove you from his family. Why would God decide to adopt children for himself from a wicked and rebellious people? Jonathan Edwards once wrote, a fountain is not deficient if it overflows. Think about that again. A fountain is not deficient if it overflows. It is, in fact, a fountain. (laughs) It's inclined to overflow. And God is like an overflowing fountain. And the adoption of men and women is the kind, gracious, intentional, natural overflow of God's love and joy as a father. But it is unexpected. It is, and what an unexpected thing it is to desire to be a father to his fallen creation. Most of you have seen or read The Lord of the Rings, the recent retreat David kept treating us to quotes from the Fellowship of the Ring. When we first see Golem in the film, he is a strange creature. Really not sure what he is, but you find out a bit later that he was a hobbit named Schmeagel. And he found the One Ring and became enslaved to its power. And as a slave, he undergoes this transformation so that the image of the hobbit becomes so marred that it's lost altogether. And at one point he even says, we forgot the taste of bread. We even forgot our own name. And that's much like what happened to us in Adam when we became enslaved to sin. We forgot who we were. We even forgot our own name. But know this, God adopted you while you were like that. 
You are at war with Him. You are that hideous, transformed individual. And it means that His decision to adopt you was not based upon how cute and attractive you were. How smart, how capable. It wasn't based upon your fitness or your worthiness. He died for you while you were weak and an enemy of Him. And many people view God's adoption like the musical Annie, I think. We think either from Daddy Warbuck's point of view that we must be this cute, adorable redhead that God loves to dote upon, or we think maybe from Annie's point of view that God is this harsh God whose favor we have to earn through good behavior while we try to get rid of our competitors. But that's not the way God adopts his children. He chooses his children before the foundation of the world and decides beforehand to lift us up out of that hopeless estate and place us in a family. In fact, it's so important to him that it's how he chooses to heap praise upon himself. He's so passionate about it, he sends his son to be rejected so that we might be brought into his family. And if you stop there and think about that, Christmas is about how God the Son Jesus was sent by the Father in order that the sonship that was lost by Adam and by extension to all of us would be restored and infinitely improved upon by being adopted in, through, in and through Christ. And the admirable thing that I see in Joseph is that even as the father was doing that, think about that, even as the father is doing that through his son, Jesus, Joseph is emulating God and adopting that very same son who was sent for his salvation. In Isaiah 1.17 it says, Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, Defend the cause of the fatherless. Then in James 1.27, it says, True religion that God our Father accepts is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And so, God adopted us for the praise of His grace, out of His purpose, without respect to ethnicity, need, or worthiness. He adopted us for His glory out of the overflow of his fatherly love, and that's the same reason, for example, that we as Christian families should adopt orphans, or if we're not able to adopt, that we support those types of ministries. It's the same reason that Joseph obeyed the words of the angel and took in Jesus. So I want to tell you, I think Joseph is an unsung hero of the Christmas story. He's an overlooked detail outside of the fact that the angel appeared to Joseph and it all said it all right, and then as he accompanies Mary to, to Bethlehem. But we don't know much about him outside of these very small snippets. But he models for us the grace and adoptive love of God and no doubt model for the young Jesus these same characteristics, characteristics that are later exhibited in Jesus himself. For the good news of Christmas is that Jesus said these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim that news of justice and mercy married together. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, 
and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We save, we serve a good Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for all that you've done for us. Thank you for men like Joseph, men who exhibited godly justice, who expressed an adoptive love, all that emulated the the good characteristics that you have, the holy characteristics that we should have in our own relationships and families. I pray that we would be people who are just in the same way, who value your law, but remember grace, especially to the outcast, especially to the weak. Father, who don't have conditions attached to our love. But Father, who love even before worthiness, even before merit. May that be true of our marriages. May that be true of our families, our relationships, our friendships. Help us to be more like Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen.